Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. And you're listening to the Grok Science Show. That's right. It's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. Coming up on today's program, Professor Stephen Gimbel will join us to discuss Einstein's Jewish science. So stay tuned for all of this. Plus the Grokatron 5000. And our world-famous question of the week. Coming right up. Here. On the Grok's Science Show. Science Show. Well, the theory of relativity, as proposed by Albert Einstein, is one of the landmarks in modern physics, so much so that it is almost impossible to think of it being denigrated, for among other things, being a Jewish science, as the Nazis did during the time with Adolf Hitler. But this provocative phrase underscores many philosophical questions regarding the origins of some scientific work, such as those of Einstein. Well, joining us today to discuss this issue is Professor Stephen Gimbel. Professor Gimbel is the Edwin T. and Cynthia Shearer Johnson Professor for Distinguished Teaching in the Humanities and Chair of the Department of Philosophy at Gettysburg College, where he's won the Luther and Bernice Johnson Award for Distinguished Teaching. He's the author of several works, including Exploring the Scientific Method, Cases and Questions, Rene Descartes, The Search for Uncertainty, and Defending Einstein, Hans Reinbach's Writing on Space, Time, and Motion. His most recent work is Einstein's Jewish Science, Physics at the Intersection of Politics and Religion, and Professor Gimbel, we're very pleased today to have you on the Grok Science Show. Thrilled to be here. Uh, well, certainly our pleasure. It certainly looks fascinating book you've written here called Einstein's Jewish Science, in which you talk about the nature of how Einstein came about with ideas and something of the political time in which he lived. Why did you decide to write this book? Well, we often have this view of science that it's removed from everything else around it, that because science tries to give us these objective truths about the behavior of everything in the universe, that the creation of science is itself objective. But the fact is, and you know, we see it now with controversies around the teaching of intelligent design or the, the current controversy around global warming, that science actually happens in a cultural context. Scientists are people, and people live at places and times. And when we look at the way that our scientific theories come about, it turns out that the, the stories are actually a little bit more complex and interesting than we give them credit for. And why do you think there's this move, if you will, to try and divorce science from sort of social, political climate of, of the time? Well, I think it in two places. One, I think it comes in a certain sense from the scientists themselves, right? The fear is that, you know, if we do see science as connected to time and place, that it'll seem a little bit vulnerable. We had back in the 90s, older listeners may remember, that we had something called the science wars, you know, where you had a, a number of people trying to argue that scientific truth doesn't exist because all beliefs come about as a, a result of cultural artifacts. And science, on the one hand, certainly does strive to give us objectively testable theories, right? The idea is that scientists come up with ideas for how the universe may work, and then they compare it with predictions that they make to see whether the universe does, in fact, work that way or not. And the more we can divorce 
what we in philosophy call the context of justification, the reasons for believing something from the context of discovery, the way that scientists came about with uh, the theory itself, the more that the science then seems to be, in some sense, firmly grounded. So that the worry, in some sense, is that rhetorically, if we see how sloppy, how real the actual workings of science by scientists is, that somehow it reflects negatively on the science. The other is, in a certain sense, the way we teach science, right? When we teach science, we teach it from textbooks. We teach it in this very cleaned-up fashion. And in part, that's because science, as it's done, is hard. What we can do after the fact is go back and clean it up and make it clear, take little parts that might have just been wrong, figure out how to say them a little better. And so the science we teach tends to be cleaned up. And as a result, we think of science as in that way, that, you know, you can flip to the back of the book and find an absolute answer, whereas real science, as it's done, can be a little bit messy. So I think those two factors really combine to give us this sense of science that isn't the science that scientists do on a daily basis. Do you think this is actually detrimental to promoting science in the sense that it seems so removed from the normal workings of society that ungraspable from the outside? Well, I think it's both positive and negative. I think, you know, and you see this in the approach that, say, you know, the creationists take. And, well, you know, evolution is just a theory. And there are certain scientists who are opposing certain elements of evolutionary theory. So, therefore, it, it can't be something that is worth teaching. Well, yeah, every scientific theory is at every time in history going to come under challenge. That's just how science works. And so on the one hand, I think there is rhetorical power in showing science to be something ahistorical in that it creates in the popular mind a, a firmer foundation for science. But I think it also is unhelpful in that and you see this, I think, especially in the global warming discussions, people just tend not to understand how science is done, that there are these running debates, and that these running debates don't mean that certain well-established uh, consensus-earning results are reasonable to believe. The fact that scientists can be found to disagree with a conclusion doesn't mean that there isn't good evidence to support it, good reason to believe it. So I, I think part of it comes from the general misunderstanding of the way science works. And I think divorcing science from its cultural context, from its history, both helps and hurts in that way. Certainly in the case of Einstein and went out in the book as being something of an ad hominem attack by the Nazis to discredit his work. Absolutely. Yeah. What you see there, and it, it really is something that isn't terribly dissimilar to what we see now, uh, and you saw it even before Einstein with uh, someone like Galileo, where science in certain sense touches very deeply held beliefs that have political resonance. So Einstein he was writing at a time when it wasn't just science, but you saw it in the arts, you saw it in politics, you saw it across the board. Just before and after World War I, you had this deep questioning of all of our foundational notions, right? If, if you look at that period, that's when you get modern art. That's when you get Bauhaus architecture. That's when you get so many of these movements, atonal music, where you get people questioning the very 
basis of what had been very firm, very stable endeavors. And then Einstein is yet another one. And so you get this sense that things that we could depend on, things that were absolutely certain were no longer there for us. And that creates a certain cultural instability. Now, add to that in Germany, legitimate political instability. You know, after World War I, you had just a horrible economic situation that led to political instability. And what you get is a very volatile mix. Now, Einstein was not only a great scientist, he was also very politically active in Germany. He was a pacifist, and he spoke out against World War I, which was a very widely supported war. Germany at the time you know, really had the sense that it was ascendant, that it was its time to really assume the mantle of you know, the great uh, Western state, Right, and World War One was seen as you know Germany's chance to really establish itself, and here was Einstein speaking out against it, which made him deeply unpopular, deeply unpopular. You know, in the same way that say Jane Fonda was seen during the Vietnam War, or Michael Moore after 9/11. Right, the idea that these people who speak out against militarism are often seen as unpatriotic, and that's how Einstein was labeled. Well, what happened with the rise of Hitler and uh, Nazism is that Einstein was deeply, deeply vilified. Now, Einstein did nothing to dissuade this. He was an active enemy, those folks, and he went around the world speaking tours, using what we would now call dog whistle politics, using phrases that audiences in Britain, France, or the United States might not understand quite so much, but back home it was very clear who he was speaking to. And so there was this deep dislike on both sides. And Einstein's political power was seen as tied to his scientific success. You know, the, the general theory of relativity had just gotten its big piece of evidence, right, with the, the bending of light, which was observed during the eclipse. And Einstein was this worldwide celebrity. And so here was this political enemy who was a worldwide celebrity. And so the thought was that the way we can undermine his political power is to undermine his science. And so what you had was really a popular movement of German conservatives who were out there to destroy uh, any belief in the theory of relativity. And so what started out as a purely scientific matter ended up in the political arena. It, point out, it actually raises a very important question in terms of Einstein, one aspect of it, how much of that really influenced his coming up with the theory of relativity? Well, that's actually a fascinating question. In part, we do have his writings. You know, we can't get a, a certain answer because that would require us reading Einstein's mind, which, you know, obviously we can't do. But we know what he was reading, we know what he was thinking about, and we know that he was deeply influenced by the writings of certain physicists at the time, people like H.A. Lawrence or Henri Poincaré, uh, Ernst Mach. Uh, we know he was influenced by philosophers, people like David Hume he was reading at the time. Now, none of these people are Jewish. We know that at this time, he's not a practicing Jew. For a while, when he was eight years old, he actually became deeply religious. Then he turned nine and stopped. So... We can't draw a direct line between anything religious and the content of the theory. Now, 
That's not always true. If you look at, say, the gravitation theories that came before Einstein, if you look at those of Rene Descartes and Isaac Newton, both of them we can see from their writings are directly influenced by their theological views. Now, with Einstein, he was secular, so that wasn't the case. But what we do see in Einstein is an interesting way of thinking, which does parallel what you see in some Jewish writers. So now if you look at Einstein, he, he begins his famous 1905 paper where he sets out his special theory of relativity, the first theory of relativity, with an interesting example. He has a coil and a magnet. And if you hold the coil still and move the magnet through the coil, you generate a current. Now, if you hold the magnet still and move the coil back and forth over the magnet, you generate the same current. Now, if you look at the classical explanation that we get from Maxwell's laws, it gives two very different explanations for those currents. In one case, you have a static magnetic field. In the other, you have a dynamic magnetic field. What Einstein said is, wait a minute. They're just the same situation viewed from different reference frames. And the basis here is that there is a complete symmetry between them and that any real theory ought to give one single explanation for those two. We see the same move in the general theory of relativity where he takes gravitation and tries to fold it into his earlier theory. And, you know, he says, look, we can think of you're in an elevator, right, and you have a bathroom scale. And you stand on the bathroom scale, and the elevator isn't moving, and you look down, what do you see? You see your normal weight. Now, suppose the unthinkable happens. Suppose the chain breaks, and as you're hurtling down the elevator shaft in your last moments, you look down at the bathroom scale, what does it read? It reads zero. Why? Well, how does the bathroom scale work? You stand on it, the, the springs inside squish, and it reads your weight. Now, if you and the bathroom scale are both falling at the same rate, right, there's no floor to push back against the bottom, so the springs don't squish, so the scale reads zero. Now, let's change the situation a little bit. Suppose you're in a rocket far away from any massive object, and you have a bathroom scale, you stand on it, well, you're weightless in space, so it'll read zero. Now, suppose you start up the engines, and the rocket is accelerating upward, right? You look down at the scale. Well, if you're accelerating at just the right rate, it'll read the same weight you would have on Earth. So if you awoke to find yourself in a small metallic room with nothing but a bathroom scale, could you tell if you were in an elevator on Earth or in a rocket far out in space? No, because if it read zero, you might be in space in no gravitation, or you might be on Earth accelerating downward. If it read your weight, you might be at rest in the elevator close to Earth, or you might be accelerating in the rocket. Now, we had two different explanations. Again, Einstein does the same move. He says, wait a minute. They're just different ways of explaining the same situation. So what we have are different perspectives, different explanations, but one underlying truth. Similarly, he does it you know, with respect to particles and waves. This was one of his big contributions to quantum mechanics, particle wave duality, right? These seem to be two very different notions, but with his explanation of the photoelectric effect, which is if you take uh, a black light and you shine it on metal, electrons are kicked off. Now, our standard theory didn't quite explain it in a way that matched up with observation. Einstein figured out a new way, and that was to treat light 
in a way that could be both particle and wave. And so we get this idea in a lot of his writings that what we're doing is taking two what seem like different explanations for something and seeing them as just flip sides of a single underlying truth. Well, you actually see that means of reasoning in a lot of the early rabbis in the Talmud. Now, for Jews, there is you know, what uh, Christians call the Old Testament, you know, the, the five books of Moses. But then there is an, another book, a book of commentary on it, and that's what scholars study. And what's interesting about that book is that for every passage, you'll have multiple interpretations of it, multiple explanations. And you might ask, well, which one is right? Well, that's not a question Jews ask. It's not which one is right. Each of them are right. Each one is showing a different element of the underlying truth. And so what you see is this interesting correlation between Einstein's way of reasoning and this Jewish way of reasoning. Now, this is not to claim that Einstein was influenced by the Talmud or by any rabbis. It, it's, it's probably not the case, but he did grow up in a Jewish community. So was the influence there? Maybe, maybe not, but you do have an interesting correlation. It's curious, though, if there are other cultures, other religions that might have the same sort of relativistic view that had he grown up in those cultures as well, he might also have come up with um, these concepts. That's absolutely right. And what's interesting is you see this way of reasoning even today amongst contemporary thinkers. And two interesting places you find it are amongst feminist philosophers of science and amongst post-colonial Africana thinkers. So what's interesting is that you do find this notion of relativity amongst people who are outsiders in a, a culture, which in a certain sense isn't very surprising because when you are in the majority, what you have the ability to do is to define the concepts, define the way we talk and think about things. And minorities in that culture will have to adapt to it. But while they can always speak the language of those in power of the majority, they also see things from a different point of view, from a different perspective. And so people who are in an out group will often be able to see things more than one way. And this is why I think if you look at, say, comedians, right? I mean, if you think about the way a joke is structured, Right? You have a setup that leads you to think of a situation in one way, and then a punchline that makes you realize, oh, I was supposed to be thinking about it differently. So you'll find most of the great comedians tend to be from minority groups of various sorts. And I think science, in a, a deep way, is, is like comedy in that, that when you're looking for a new discovery, what you need to do is take a situation that everybody's thinking about and think about it from a slightly different angle. And I think you're right that there are many cultures, especially those where you have a group that isn't in power, they are used to thinking about things in more than one way. And I think that does give them an advantage scientifically. But how much did his theories influence Jewish thinking? Well, that's interesting because there were, at the time, two very different veins of Jewish thought that were going on. You had, at this time, you know, this modernistic trend where the world was changing, the world was becoming, you know, a new modern place that didn't look like it looked even two, three generations ago. And that tends to polarize groups. And so you had one group who thought, well, you know what, the world is changing. Science gives us a completely different picture. And we as a Jewish community need to change with it. On the other hand, you get those who see any change as weakening of 
meaningful tradition. And so what you found amongst Jewish thinkers was a deep split. There were those who wanted very much to maintain the old ways, and that meant opposition to everything new and modern. And you saw ancient sorts of superstitions, Kabbalah, and that sort of thing coming back, a sort of anti-rationalism. And those people really did, even within the Jewish community, find Einstein to be a threat. On the other hand, you had those who thought this community gives us strength, but at the same time, it's a changing world. We need to change with it. And for those people, Einstein was a hero. And what's interesting is that while Einstein is the icon of the modernizing side. On the other side, Martin Buber is the big name for the traditionalists. We know that while they were on opposite sides of this conversation, they were actually very dear friends who would meet regularly, have dinner at Buber's house. And in some of Einstein's writings, I think you can find clear evidence that what he was trying to do was figure out how to find common ground between them, that he may not be a believer in a supernatural God. He may not be someone who practiced the rituals. But in a certain sense, he was still a member of the community. And so we see Einstein trying to figure out how to bring those two groups together, those who saw modernism as an essential way of being in this new world and those who saw it as a threat. With respect to his science, I think he was just going where the theory led. I mean, in, in a certain sense, you know, the notion of unification is clearly there in his work. You know, after the theory of relativity comes, he's trying to create something akin to what we would now call a, a unified field theory. Of course, you know, he had his problems with quantum mechanics, which kept the, the project as he saw it from being successful. But that sort of bringing together across different boundaries that we see both in politics and in science from Einstein clearly is a, a sort of guiding project that you see everywhere. What uh, then should we think about uh, Einstein's science and time and way in which he lived? Well, I think the key is that Einstein's science was, in a certain sense, Jewish. Not Jewish in that it's related in any way to a Judaic religion, but Jews are an odd group historically because they are found virtually everywhere, but before the modern state of Israel, they weren't really anywhere, right? That is, they didn't have a place. And so what you had was the beginnings of what we now call cosmopolitanism. That is, Jews were able to be citizens of the world. That is, they were able to take very different perspectives and to try to bring them together, and that creates something larger, something more interesting. And I think that really is, in politics, in science, and in life in general, something that would enrich us all. That is an open-mindedness that comes from seeing the value in different perspectives and to try to bring them together into something larger. Well, uh, the new book is called Einstein's Jewish Science, Physics at the Intersection of Politics and Religion, and the author is uh, Professor Stephen Gimble. Professor Gimble, thank you very much for joining us today on the Grok Science Show. Oh, thank you very much. This was a lot of fun. And you were just listening to Professor Stephen Gimble discussing the Einstein's Jewish science. This is the Grok's Science Show. Coming up in just a few minutes, it's the Grokatron 5000, so stay tuned. It's not easy having yourself a good time.
Okay, it's time to play the game, the Grokatron 5000. It is our supercomputer, formerly known as Deep Blue. Today, the Grokatron 5000 has chosen the topic, particle or wave? So, for the following five individuals, the Grokatron 5000 would like to know if you think they're more particle-like or wave-like. Professor Gimbler, ready to play the game? Absolutely. All right, <laughs> here we go. Person number one, particle or wave? It's the radio uh, shock jock, Howard Stern. Howard Stern, particle. He is certainly very located at a certain space, and while he may not have a lot of weight, you always know exactly where he is. <laughs> All right, number two, Tiger Woods. Tiger Woods, I would say wave. His golf game sort of goes up and down, <laughs> and just when you think he's going to peak again, uh, he's back down in a trough. <laughs> All right, number three, the uh, physicist Stephen Hawking. Stephen Hawking. Ooh, I would have to say particle. Incredibly massive particle that tends to, whenever he shows up, attract all the attention that's in our room. Uh, number four, it's uh, real estate mogul Donald Trump. Donald Trump. Uh, I would have to say wave because it's not clear whether his hair is really there or not. It certainly goes in a lot of wavy directions, I would say. <laughs> Uh, okay, finally, number five, President of the United States, Barack Obama. Ooh, that's a good one. I would have to say particle, because we're going to know in just a couple of months whether he's still there or not. <laughs> All right, well, uh, Professor Gimm, I want to thank you very much for sticking around playing our game. And again, talking about your book, which is called Einstein's Jewish Science, Physics at the Intersection of Politics and Religion. Thank you so much for your time. Well, thank you for having me. This is wonderful. And that's all for this week's edition of the Grok Science Show. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us here, you can email us at science at groks.net. For Grok Science, I'm Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.groks.net. Have a great afternoon and keep on grokking.